uh, good morning, everybody. Um, can I just uh, draw us all to um, attention? Um, I just uh, really want to welcome everybody to this session. And um, what I hope is it's going to be a really interesting session. I think uh, I'd just like to reflect back on just a couple of things that uh, Peter Peel said in the last in his keynote address, because I think what we're addressing here is the bit of the the bit of the process. It's really about process, or what he called delivery innovation, and that is the weakest element of innovation. And I think that that's something that's really important for us to keep in mind during this session. Now, um, our title is "How do we provide high-quality healthcare with decreased resources globally?" And uh, just to give you a bit of uh, context for that, there's people at the top of the NHS at the moment saying that uh, between 15 and 20 billion pounds have to come out of spending in the NHS in the next four or five years. And that's roughly 15% of everything that goes into the NHS. So that is a huge amount of resources to come out, at the same time as sustaining or probably improving the way in which we care for our patients and the experience that they're getting. So that's that's the challenge that we're facing, and of course we've got all the answers. Um, so we'll be able to tell you that this morning. But um, what I would like to do is make this as interactive as possible. So we're going to have a session at the beginning where we just introduce ourselves as the panel. Um, but after that, when I start asking questions of the panel, um, I'd be really happy to uh, engage with people in the audience, because uh, otherwise an hour and 40 minutes is going to be quite a long time. So that's sitting watching an epic movie, isn't it? And, uh, and so I, I don't really want to get into that kind of... Scenario. So I'd really quite like it if you feel stimulated by a question and you want to say something, um, just put your hand up and somebody with a microphone will rush towards you um, and we'll uh, be able to engage you in the, in the conversation. So, so you know, just a little bit really um, on first of two housekeeping things. I have to remind you um, that this session is, finished, is followed immediately by lunch and if you're going to parallel session three, it's back in here immediately after lunch. If you're going to parallel session four, it's back where the... Um, keynote address was. And another, another reminder that there is a question box out in reception for the plenary session tomorrow, and they are trying to address as many attendees' questions as possible, so please make use of that facility. So uh, just very, very briefly um, about me. I am looking down the list, uh, probably only about one of about a dozen people at this conference who would describe themselves as a healthcare manager, I suspect. Um, there's a lot of other people, <laughs> a lot of other people here who are uh, clinical, academic, um, but I'm, if you like, at the interface, uh, trying to put these uh, innovations into practice in healthcare and really uh, change the way that things happen, not on a clinical way, but just in a, in a process way. Um, I work uh, for a regional um, health authority, strategic health authorities, we call them, um, South Central, and Oxford is within South Central. Um, it extends from, uh, for those of you who know the geography of England, it extends from Milton Keynes down to the Isle of Wight. And uh, it's really very long and thin. And it's very difficult as a region to, um, it's not a sort of cohesive region, if you like. It doesn't feel like a region. So that in itself is quite difficult. And I think we have about 90,000 people working in the NHS within South Central. Um, and I, I mentioned that to Thorsey, and he thought 90,000 for the whole of the NHS. So that's a, there's, a, <laughs> there's a different perspective. He didn't uh, thought there were 1.3 million of us working in the NHS. It was uh, quite a surprise. So I think that's, that's something which we, we will bring different perspectives to this. Um, I'm responsible for what they call the Regional Innovation Fund, which is roughly uh, £5 million a year. 
and uh, that um, is really to <coughs> stimulate healthcare innovation and that can be any kind of innovation from uh, invention through to process so that's, that's um, one thing and uh, I've been involved in public sector um, change and public sector process innovation for a, a long long time um, and I'm now very, at the moment I'm very enthusiastic about uh, lean processes and I think Peter's going to be talking to us about that um, because he's a, a specialist in lean as well at the Oxford Director. So um, I think what, what I want to do is really just um, open this up now. And I'm going to start really by, um, you know, we are, we are looking really for the holy grail here. How do we, how do we increase quality while we're reducing costs? And, and I want to introduce my panel members. We've all got a perspective on that. And first I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Lynn Marr, who is Interim Director of Innovation at the NHS Institute for Innovation. And improvement. Great to have you here, Lynn. Um, can you tell us uh, what you're primarily responsible for at the NHS Institute? And for those of us who aren't um, aware, perhaps a little bit about what the NHS Institute uh, does. Sure, thank you. <coughs> and uh, I, I'll try and uh, shout up, but I'm just recovering from laryngitis, so I completely <laughs> lost my voice over the weekend, uh, much to the delight of my husband. Um, but it, it is coming back, so excuse me if I get a little bit croaky. Um, um, I will talk about the uh, Institute in a minute, but just to give some background, I am uh, a nurse uh, by profession, uh, predominantly worked in intensive care and GP practice, so polarities if you think about <coughs> healthcare. Um, I, I've also, uh, my nursing colleagues at the time said I'd gone over to the dark side because I went into NHS management and then into the darker side when I moved into a national role leading on improvement and innovation. Uh, the NHS Institute is a, a national organisation completely funded by the Department of Health to seek out new ideas uh, that are going to help to transform the NHS. That's the strap line. So we're a small organisation and we're looking for new ways of working and we predominantly focus on process or practice uh, innovations rather than pure technology or product or, or device. But we do try to make the link between each because as was mentioned this morning, you know, you might have the most fantastic technology, but if you plonk it or device, if you plonk it into a poorly designed process, well, you're not going to get the benefit. So uh, we're seeking out new ways and we look very much towards you know, what's happening in our own health system, but also international health systems and other industries. And some of our most um, popular uh, products have actually been taken from lean manufacturing. So taking the principles of lean, uh, and <laughs> I'm sure Peter might, might criticise this, but we translate them for the NHS. So, you know, it's not like uh, the purest side of lean, but we translate them so that nurses, <coughs> other frontline workers can use them comfortably in the NHS. And so we, we develop new products, but also we um, are transforming ourselves at the moment because one of our big issues has been with dissemination. And now we're reducing the product development side and we're increasing the number of our staff who are out there working hand-in-hand -hand with frontline staff in 
their own organisations. Thank you very much, Lynn. And I'm, as you know, I'm going to put all four of you on the yep. spot, and I'm going to ask you whether you've got a particular innovation you're excited about at the yep. moment that you might like to um, explore sure. with the audience today. You want me Happy? to? Go on. Oh, there's lots. <laughs> I think, um, you know, I think our, our product that I mentioned that, that links into Lean, uh, the first uh, subset of that was called the productive ward. And we talked about the productive ward with senior leaders because they're, what they're looking for is productivity, efficiency and cash releasing. Um, that didn't really gel very well with the nursing fraternity. And if you hear nurses talk about it, we have a second strap line called releasing time to care. And what has happened with that product is word got out very early and um, we had a massive pull. It is now in 98% of all organisations and it has morphed. People said, but we're working on mental health. Uh, wards. We want one for mental health, so one was designed with mental health uh, staff. Uh, community services wanted a version for them, so one's been developed for community services and one for community hospitals. Actually, we translated it to the productive leader um, as well, and, and that's about better email management, meeting management. The latest product is productive operating theatre. So, you know, because people in theatre said, actually, this is going to work fabulously for us. So that, that <coughs> particular piece of work has been very influential in the NHS and is loved by the people who are using it, which is the most important thing. I'm just going to quickly mention one other thing, Stevie, um, which is around the culture for innovation, because actually frontline staff are innovative. What they co constantly say is the culture in this organisation is not helping me. So we're doing a lot of work on that in, at the moment. Okay, thank you very much, Lynn. Um, right, moving on to, um, I'd like to give a really warm welcome to uh, Dr. Thulsi Ravilla, who's um, come here from India today. He is the Executive Director of the Lions Arabin Institute of Community Ophthalmology. Uh, very warm welcome to you. And uh, perhaps you can tell us what you're primarily um, responsible for at the Aravind uh, eye care system. Yeah, uh, the first correction, not a doctor. Okay. Mm -hmm. Kind of your brief, uh, the, the, the interconnect between the medical fraternity and the uh, community which needs the healthcare and the patients as well. Uh, started off my career uh, uh, as, uh, as a health administrator uh, at a time in India, there are very few of, uh, very few professional managers in, in a hospital setting. Uh, that was uh, about uh, 27, 28 years back. In the last 10 years, I have been uh, heading an institute uh, which um, uh, essentially is trying to transfer best practices that we have kind of learned over time uh, and from other places to other hospitals. Uh, uh, just a bit on the, the hospital itself. It's a single specialty hospital focusing just on ophthalmology. Uh, we don't employ... 1.3 million people, we employ about 2,500 people. Uh, in terms of uh, volume, I think the last uh, comparison which we uh, did, we are roughly doing about 60% uh, of what the NHS uh, eye care services. I believe we do about half a million yeah. eye surgeries, we do about 300,000 surgeries uh, per year. Similar population, I think 60 million is what we <coughs> cover. 
so along the process, we, we kind of uh, fine-tuned our system for very high efficiency. And this is what we are helping to uh, transfer to other, other IO hospitals, mainly in India and quite a <laughs> significant in terms of almost, uh, on average, the hospitals double their output uh, in the following year following the intervention. Uh, so I think that's been a, a good contribution to increasing the, the eye care uh, in, in most of the developing countries. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, right, now I'd like to welcome uh, Mr. Peter McCulloch. He's clinical reader in the Nuffield Department of Surgery at the University of Oxford. His specialty interest in upper GI surgery, particularly minimally invasive surgery uh, for cancer, and he's director of the very interesting sounding uh, QRSTU, uh, Quality, Reliability, Safety and Teamwork Unit 
Um, perhaps you can tell us, Peter, what you're primarily responsible for and, and a little about that very interesting-sounding unit. Okay, I'll, I'll try and keep it short because I'm keen yeah. to get into yeah, yeah, the, into so the I, discussion. Yeah. You know? I'm basically a cancer surgeon by background. And um, my, uh, my path here started about 10 years ago when I ran a study on results in my area of cancer surgery and just realized how hugely variable morbidity and mortality from operations were throughout the country and how that couldn't be explained by blaming it on the patients. When we did risk adjustment for the patients, it was just as bad. And that led me in two directions. One, looking at um, evaluation of surgery, so evidence-based medicine and methodology. So I'll be very interested in the evaluation section tomorrow. And, and the other, looking at safety and quality in surgery, and that's become my main research interest. And I work with uh, an ergonomist, Ken Katzpole, who's in the audience, and we've been doing um, a lot of research on how to improve the quality of the, the, ca the care we deliver, uh, focusing on two aspects. One is communication, teamwork, getting people to work together better. And the other, as has been alluded to, has been using uh, lean to try and uh, redesign processes of care. Um, I'm, I don't think I'm a lean expert. I think I've, uh, we've tried to do a slightly schizophrenic thing. We've tried to um, evaluate lean scientifically, so look at it objectively and say, is it working, is it not working, why? And at the same time, do it by implementing it in uh, the, one of the surgical wards on the John Radcliffe. Uh, which, is, which is quite a difficult trick, but I think we have learned some very valuable lessons from it. And I, I agree with a, a lot of the, the points you made about one of the key bits being actually to make it customizable, to make, to make it fit the local environment. Um, so what am I responsible for? Well, I'm responsible for trying to keep things going in terms of the research unit. And um, at the moment, we're working on a program grant from NIHR trying to synthesize these two aspects of our work. Okay, and do you have, with you, uh, do you have a, a particular innovation that you're very excited about at the moment? That, uh... Well, that's, that's it, really. I mean, I think okay. we've, we've, we've learned from a lot from both of the major mm -hmm. projects we've run over the last couple of years. We've shown that if you get theatre teams to communicate better um, using tricks from other industries like aviation, but also from, from the military, mm -hmm. from the power industry, um, you can cut down technical errors by a very significant amount. Um, but we found that because we did that in a traditional teaching mode, uh, in a culture that wasn't particularly welcoming to it, and I'm not just talking about John Radcliffe, I'm talking about surgical cultural generally, um, the effect went away when you stopped pushing the boulder up the hill. Uh, the contrast with the lean work has been that the effect has been very sustainable indeed. Once we went away, the nurses felt ownership of what they'd done. They kept it. They modified it a bit, but they kept on doing it. So what I'm excited about is trying to put the two things together. Thank okay, you. That's great. And finally, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Professor Keith Willett. He's a Professor of Orthopaedic Trauma Surgery at the University of Oxford, and he's also the National Clinical Director for Trauma Care with the Department of Health, so you might know him as a czar. <laughs> not leading up to an election, you don't. <laughs> it's quite clear the czars may not survive an election, so I'll stay as National Clinical Director. Thank you. I also have to say that I play football with Steve on a Sunday night, so anything, any dispute that is not resolved uh, over this morning around this uh, group will be resolved uh, on Sunday. Um, and he's never had to treat me. Oh, one of the few <laughs> of the veterans team. Um, I'm a, an orthopaedic surgeon by trade, only do trauma, and trauma and injury has been my passion for 20 years. Um, I arrived in Oxford 
and within 12 months had managed to completely change the service. And I thought, this is really easy innovation. I can look back now and work out why I was able to do it so quickly, probably because I was wet behind the ears, knew nothing about innovation or management, didn't know anybody or the system, so I had to play everybody in the politics and negotiations at every level in the organisation. After that, that wonderful eye-opening success was followed by 15 years of complete frustration, I suspect, jumping up and down, trying to change the world, dented the ceiling a few times and gave myself a lot of headaches. And I think that sort of sums up my, my career in, in innovation. So frustrated by that, I went into injury prevention work from a charity point of view to try and stop the injuries in the first place and run a, a national charity. Um, also went into the trying to change it, because I realised I couldn't change it from the bottom, which frustrated me. So I went outside and went through the political route and started working with politicians to help them so I could get a way into government at the top. Um, and that was sort of partly successful, but that frustrated me. So I then went off to try and change the whole world outside of the NHS and started trying to do it in uh, China and now Cambodia and Hong Kong. And if you think trying to change within one culture is a problem. You're trying to do innovation across culture, and I learned a hell of a lot more, most of which was about the frustrations of not understanding a system. So after all that, and being one of the government's biggest critics, um, they then uh, appointed me as National Clinical Director. So if there's press in the room, anything I say from this point on uh, has nothing to do with government policy. It is my personal view. Um, as National Clinical Director, I'm re responsible for delivering two policies. One is a network for major trauma and um, for regions across uh, England. And the other, which is the one that's coming through um, the quickest and perhaps is the one that if you ask me what I was most excited about and delivering in, is actually perhaps a very uh, a much less sexy but far more important uh, area, and that is the older patient who has a fragility fracture, particularly the hip fracture patient. Um, 100,000 a year in England alone. Average length of stay in the NHS is 28 days. That's 1.6 million bed days. A third of them don't get to surgery for more than 48 hours for no good reason other than the system doesn't work. And the 28 days they stay in hospital is mostly because the system doesn't work. So we've got some really innovative ways of trying to take forward a whole change because I think commissioning can drive change provided it's intelligent commissioning, and it's not blind targets. Uh, and that's what I'm doing now for both of my policies and trying to drag the Department of Health with me. Thank you very much, Keith. So, so that's, uh, that is our panel, and um, I'm going to throw the discussion uh, open in a minute, but I just want to just say that uh, you know, any of you who've been listening to the news recently will know that the topic that we're talking about this morning is, is very hot news in England, and uh, even only last week, the Economist Intelligence Unit produced a, a report called uh, Doing More With Less about the NHS for the next four years and what's going to have to change. And even this morning on the, uh, on the Today programme, if you're up early enough, you might have heard a discussion between um, a representative of reform who says we should be cutting tens of thousands of beds out of the NHS and a representative from the Consultants Committee of the BMA who was saying, actually, that's not necessarily the right way. What we need to do is focus on the quality and the innovation, and then the beds will come out naturally. So, so there's, a big, there's a big tension around at the moment around what is the impact of innovation in healthcare. 
And so I just think that uh, this is a really timely debate, so I just wanted to mention that. But I'm going to start with Lynn. You're bringing a national perspective to this. So can you just tell us what you think some of the main uh, challenges are being faced in enabling innovation at the moment? Um, I'm, I'm sitting very much in the camp of um, innovation, increasing quality and safety in the NHS is, go, is the only way that we can sustainably, sustainably take beds out. Um, I think if we go down the slash and burn approach, it's completely the wrong way. I think one of the biggest problems, uh, certainly that we face from a national uh, level, is that of um, large-scale adoption um, of new ways of working. I think, you know, like I mentioned to you, the productive ward product, <coughs> highly valued by staff in 98% of organisations. Every single organisation has reported similar positive impact me um, measures. But it's interesting because in most organisations it's only in one ward. There's only about three or four hospitals in our system where productive ward or the principles of are in every ward. And to be able to drive up quality and release cash and you know if we look about just just focus on one area of the health system in hospitals actually we need to be able to you know safely discharge patients earlier not not keep them in for those days because the system's broken and by doing that collectively across a whole hospital we are likely to be able to very safely um, and without negatively disrupting the service, close a ward. That's how we're going to take cash out. By one ward saying we've saved £4,000 here, we've reduced our length of stay, they might be able to close one or two beds, but it's not going to impact on staff complement or the cash overall. So for me, that's our biggest challenge, and, and we're starting to look at, at different ways to try and engage people and help to improve that level of adoption. And that includes, we're looking at many methods, but one of the things we're just looking at now is the campaign methodology. And actually we're looking um, at how the Obama campaign was run to see what lessons were there in that that we might take or might not take for the NHS. I mean, it's about looking very broadly, um, but certainly we've been looking at, at how Aravind's been um, working as well in India because, you know, actually the way that that's taken hold is something that we should look at in the NHS. Okay, so there's, a, there's an issue around... Um, adoption. Uh, yeah. that's, uh, that's, that's really important. So, and you were saying about how you wanted to engage others in this process. So do you think, for example, that engaging patients in this process can help us to um, influence innovation and perhaps even reduce costs? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an absolute firm believer of engaging patients and actually um, the Institute, uh, and I led uh, quite a bit of work which we called experienced-based design. And this was a piece of work to look at how we can more meaningfully involve patients in designing services. So not only the service but the patient. And actually, that was very, very interesting for me in terms of my many years of a, as a nurse in practicing. I hadn't engaged patients in this way. We actually 
uh, used methods from service designers, so designers who design services, um, um, to, to work with patients using a higher volume of narrative, of film, of stories, and for them to track what their experience should be like. And actually, um, the, the um, rest of the organisations were really nervous saying, but patients are going to want something, a gold-plated service. They actually don't. Patients are really good in terms of identifying things that add no value to their journey. And they come up with really good quality-enhancing, cost-saving ways to manage services. And that includes shifting services from possibly higher-priced acute care through to um, more community-based care. And we worked with acute uh, patients in acute services and patients, for example, uh, living in communities with multiple sclerosis. So we tested it out in a number of ways. Every single time um, through patients, we were able to radically improve services and reduce cost. Excellent. So there's something um, I can feel already a, a sense that actually what we're talking about here is about motivation to change and motivation to innovate. And, and uh, Peter Piot earlier was saying that actually that's what we need is innovations to stimulate behavioural change. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to uh, perhaps ask, ask Keith a question now, because in innovative industries like computing, um, ideas come from the bottom of the organisation. So people like the software engineers, they're coming up with the great ideas, and then the whole company above them changes to fit with that new idea. Um, so what's different with healthcare? Because that doesn't seem to happen. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I used to work for IBM for three summers, and it was fascinating to see um, how, how it worked and how people reapplied for their jobs as a routine because the system, the organisation, just had to change because if it didn't, it was dead. You know, you were a year away from being dead in that industry. And I was on um, Managing for Excellence. There was a Department of Health working group set together by Brunelli's Lord Crisp, who was then the chief executive of the NHS. And the IBM chief executive, I think it was for the UK, was, was on that group as one of the sort of stimulators. He didn't say a lot. He listened to a lot of debate amongst clinicians and managers and the NHS Confederation and lots of other people for, for several meetings without saying much. And then he said at the end, he said, he said, in IBM we live or die on the basis of uh, whether we perform. He said, so, he said, all our intelligence, all our intellect is at the bottom of the organisation. And he said, they probably don't meet or never meet their equal until they get to the top of the organisation. And he said, the sole function of management in IBM is to make sure that my analysts and my software engineers have a desk to write on, a seat to sit on, a pencil to write with a pen and a pencil sharpener and paper to write on. Because that's what makes it work. And he said, I don't see the NHS is any different. So that... Your innovators are at the bottom. You then have to work out how you take risks and actually run with that. And management should be about managing those risks and bringing those forward to deliver across the organisation. I think that's a, a, really, a really important point because when you come to um, sort of try and, and innovate, it's a, healthcare is obviously a much more complex environment. You've got a diversity of diagnoses and diseases. You've got a diversity of interventions across them. And you've got quite a diverse local healthcare system which to implement them in. So clearly it's a much more complex pathway. 
But I think there really is something in there. There's a real suspicion between managers and clinicians. And I think that the, 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 you know, the, the cut and burn approach didn't work. We had a mini recession in the late 90s, which um, I remember going through. And that was a bit of a top-down take things out. And we often took out keystones. And if the clinicians didn't want it to work, the clinicians can stop you. Because the clinicians are going to stop you. So if they think you're taking out keystones or taking out beds they don't want to lose, they just slowed it or they just changed the way they work. They changed their thresholds. So it's got to be um, a view about changing things. And perhaps we'll come later to how I think you should do it now. Okay. So uh, back to this theme of uh, motivation to change, really. I think that uh, is the key. I, I want to just ask uh, Thulsi about about how you've really addressed the issue of getting the most out of what is a pretty a scarce resource in your organisation, your ophthalmologist, because you've, you've got amazing um, productivity. And I'd just be really interested to know how you've gone about doing that and the motivation. Right from the beginning, it's still continuous. I think the challenge is to, to kind of have enough ophthalmologists working in the system. Uh, so clearly we did a, a few things which we later on learned uh, follows the lean uh, principles. Uh, one is we kind of broke down the tasks uh, that the ophthalmologist does, whether it is in the diagnostic or in the operating room, uh, mainly to uh, recognize that some of the tasks are very routine by nature, doesn't require any judgment. Maybe it is measurement, it is pure skill based. Uh, we took uh, all those jobs out and then uh, had uh, well-trained uh, ophthalmic technicians perform them. And it could be, so uh, for example, all the measurements, all the metrics, uh, which is uh, visual acuity, refractive error, intraocular pressure, field of vision, ultrasound, now all of those are uh, measurements where you don't want that person to do the interpretation, the doctor can do it. They just do the measurement, photography, I mean, then document it and then make it available. Usually, these tasks take a lot of time. And then when you have a very highly qualified person doing it, then uh, they produce that much less. So uh, we did a tremendous amount of uh, task shifting. Uh, with the result, two things happened. One, we released a lot of time for the uh, ophthalmologist to kind of focus on, uh, uh, on on stuff for which they've been uniquely trained, you know, to digest all information to come to a conclusion and make a good diagnosis, or do those critical steps in the surgery which only uh, they are competent to do. <coughs> so by this one, the surgeon's productivity went up, and I think their own skill levels went up. Uh, on the other hand, the other task, uh, because we had a person do only one or two tasks, uh, they became extremely good at doing it, and so the quality again went up enormously of those tasks, uh, very low error rates, and obviously at a very small fraction of the cost uh, of doing it. So uh, on one hand, we did uh, this kind of task shifting to make sure that uh, uh, we used the, the critical resource in the most appropriate manner. The other one had to do with the whole logistics of supply chain management and then uh, staffing. Uh, because our, because uh, we have five facilities and the whole workload is concentrated, uh, the average number of surgeries per day is about a thousand surgeries that we, we perform, cataract and other procedures. 
so the complexity of planning for this is enormous. You know, in terms of uh, the patient flow, matching the patient to the doctor, every patient requires a unique uh, uh, lens to be put in, making sure that lens is available. So uh, hundreds of things have to be coordinated. You know, and uh, who's available tomorrow, who's on leave. I mean, uh, there are a million things to take, take care of. And I think we just perfect the system of uh, doing that. Uh, so essentially taking the, the, the pain points away, you know, so that uh, the, the work becomes uh, both uh, very uh, efficient uh, as well as uh, the quality is not compromised in the whole process. Okay, that's very interesting. And I think the, the other area, of course, where we really need to have innovative uh, solutions is how we improve access to healthcare for those who don't get very good access at the moment. And that's, that's in the UK as well as um, globally. And I know that you've got some quite uh, innovative ideas about how you've improved access, so perhaps you could just uh, share those with us as well. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of, I mean, uh, it's a big challenge in most developing countries because you would find hospitals highly underutilized and then they would always say, we don't have the patients. But that is not true. The patients are there in the community uh, who are not getting the service. So this was the kind of the challenge that uh, uh, we continue to face. And we probably did two things in, in hindsight. One is uh, we shifted the ownership of the problem to the community. No, uh, because when you have people in the community who cannot see adequately, uh, I think it works best if the community took ownership of the problem rather than the providers. So we, we did this whole community engagement wherein the community took ownership and then we kind of guided them as to what they could do about it, uh, which was largely partnering with institutions like ours to bring such people together for diagnostic camps and things like that. So. We run a series of uh, outreach activities uh, wherein the community basically organizes the, the place, the volunteers, the patients to come together as their event. You know, it gets built and publicized as Rotary Clubs or Lions Clubs or an association's event, uh, wherein Arvind uh, is, a, is a provider of the medical service. You know. uh, so that, that, on one hand, I think, uh, created both trust uh, and access into the community in a very, very cost-effective manner. Uh, more recently, we found out, though this uh, uh, outreach work was enormously successful, if you look at the numerator, the number of people that we serve, uh, there's hundreds and thousands of people. But then we looked at the denominator, it was a very small fraction. We did a study and we discovered these camps only brought in 7% of those who had an eye problem. So then we went on to establishing a more permanent uh, infrastructure called as the equivalent of your primary uh, care uh, uh, vision centers, primary eye care centers. Uh, and there we couldn't afford to put in uh, ophthalmologists, but at the same time we wanted to make sure uh, that we're not asking everybody who came there to come to the hospital. That doesn't work. No, so we then resorted to uh, IT, to information technology. Uh, we had to, this was about seven, eight years back when the broadband was not so popular. So we had to put in our own towers. We used uh, some technology uh, that were developed in UC Berkeley uh, where we used the standard uh, Wi-Fi, not WiMAX, standard Wi-Fi to go over long distances, like 60, 70 kilometers distances. And uh, uh, we used open source uh, video conferencing software 
so through a combination of this, we made sure that uh, uh, the, the local person did all the diagnostics, had a simple EMR on which they could enter all the data, and then uh, every patient got a consultation with an ophthalmologist in the base hospital. So through this process, we were able to kind of achieve uh, the last assessment about 75-80% market penetration uh, in those areas where we have set up mission centers. We are now covering about 2.5 million people through this, this process, and the network is uh, now expanding, and we have kind of McDonaldized the uh, those mission centers into a, a standard way of working. So I think we are now more, much more set for uh, rapid uh, uh, deployment. Yeah. Okay, that's uh, really fascinating, actually. It's a really quite stimulating idea about uh, how outreach can work. And, uh, and you were doing it seven or eight years ago. I find um, mildly concerning, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to move over to uh, to Peter now. And and I think that what what we've been discussing here is that there are a whole load of uh, what we might call, if you like, determinants about whether an innovation is going to be successful or not. And so what I'd like to ask you really is what do you think um, the key determinants are around successfully implementing <coughs> innovative processes, if you like, in hospitals? Well, I've become a, a great devotee in the last year or two of, of Everett Rogers. I don't know if any of the audience know this book, but go out and read it if you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think he spent a lifetime looking at this and he came up with a lot of the answers and they make absolute sense. You know, if, if you want people to implement your innovation, then give them a reason why. You know, um, it's got to be something that the staff see, the people who are actually going to have to do it. It has to have something in it for them. It has to make their life easier or better or richer in some way. It has to be relatively easy to adopt, not terribly complicated. They have to be able to test it and decide they can give it back if they don't like it. They have to be able to customize it to their own situation. I think those are, I mean, Rogers is best known for his, um, his graph showing the particular types of people you have to get on board, the so-called early adopters. But there's so much uh, other value in that book. Uh, I think if you look at the work we did, it explained to me a lot of why the lean approach worked and the teaching approach didn't. Because of the lean approach, people could customize it. They could see that actually it was making their lives better. Could you just, uh, sorry to interrupt you for a second, could you just explain to people who don't know what the lean approach means and how you've adopted that for healthcare? (laughs) There will be people in the audience, I'm sure, who don't actually know know what the lean approach is. I've seen a lot of, since since I got involved in it, I've seen a lot of things described as lean which, which look quite different to me from what we did. And I should pay tribute here to Steve New from the business school who I think I've learned more about this from than anyone else, and who's really a a master at the staff engagement aspect of it. I think, um, first of all, it's only called lean because General Motors hated the words Toyota production system. Um, But that's that's where it came from. And um, the the principles Toyota were faced with were very similar to those that we've got today in the NHS. Uh, they're in post-World War II Japan. They're competing against Ford and General Motors, and they have to do more with less. And that's where we are now. And um, what they, the principles of, of the lean process are basically about engaging the grassroots staff in analyzing the problem in great detail and asking them to work out the process with experts to help them map it and to help design solutions to make 
the process visible, so to have constant feedback to people to tell them how they're doing, um, and to give people the opportunity to experiment very quickly so that you can throw it away. You know, you can do these so-called PDCA cycles. If you don't like what you're getting, you can stop and try something else in, in very short order. And um, I think that you can see from what I'm describing how that ends up being a process that develops ownership and engagement amongst the people who actually have to work the system. Okay, good. Can I just, um, just, for, well, can I just uh, for one second, I just want to uh, give people a little example. Uh, you may have heard this before, but uh, give a little example of how a lean process uh, mapping exercise uh, changed something. This was uh, in a, a local-ish hospital, although not in Oxford, and um, this organisation was uh, incapable of meeting a government target around uh, how quickly they could apply uh, thrombolysis to a, uh, a cardiac patient. And there's a, there's a particular amount of time between the door and the needle, as it were, 30 minutes. And th this hospital couldn't do it, so we went there and we mapped it out and you sort of put all the yellow stickies on the wall and everybody writes down what their bit in the process is. And there was one point where uh, it said, uh, contact the porter. So I said, well, who does, who does this? And um, a nurse put their hand up and said, well, I contact the porter. And I said, well, what does the porter do? And they said, well, he walks to the other side of the hospital and gets the uh, drug out of the fridge and walks back. And I said, well, how long does that take him? And they said, well, about, about 14 minutes we timed him. So, so it was impossible. So um, it was impossible for them to meet the target. So the lean answer to that was, move the fridge. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> so now they don't have a problem in meeting the target. But it was just a way they couldn't see, because they were so close to the process, but actually they needed a little bit of extra help in how mapping out what they were doing. And that, and that was a, it's a very easy example of lean, but uh, I just, sorry to interrupt you. <coughs> could I, I just take that question from the gentleman? So could you, before you say anything, could you just tell us um, who you are and uh, just what your organisation affiliation is, if you have one? So who would like to... Well, I'd, I'd love to go at that one because I think it is really one of the fundamental issues. Uh, you know, we look at um, many of the things we do. Now, I'm trying to bring in regional trauma networks. It costs money to save people's lives. The average age for someone who suffers major trauma is under 40. 
it's going to cost me 70 million to put trauma networks in as a thrifty as I can. The, the cost saving to the NHS, about 70 million. You try and get that onto the NHS agenda at ministerial level or in central government. Really difficult because currently now, unless you're going to produce hundreds of millions of pounds of savings, it's really difficult to get it in as a strategy or a programme or whatever because we're looking at a short-term thing. And that's partly because we still compartmentalise where the money sits, let alone where the interest in the patient sits. And the NHS has its budget and social care has its budget and local government and society in the broader sense. If I go to the societal costs of saving one life from serious injury in that population, it's 1.68 million. If I go to one year in the NHS and what that would mean as an annual society lost output cost, that's 880 million. But how do we drive, how do we innovate that change? Because the societal cost goes on forever, again. And these are young people, these are breadwinners. And I, I really, how we do it, it's really difficult because it seems that every time we get towards being able to look at the bigger picture, <clears throat> we then have a financial issue and everybody goes back into compartments. And then we make these short-term compartmental <coughs> changes, which we know from last time round very often don't deliver the savings, they just deliver anxiety and, and poor performance. Okay. Can I just make a point on that topic? Thank you both for your very good talk. But perhaps the big question is how we can stop the trauma happening in the first place. But actually we're really good at that. We're one of the best countries in Europe. <clears throat> but unfortunately we're not when you arrive in hospital. Then it all goes a bit pear-shaped. But that seems to be a very important Mm. Yes. And particularly globally. Globally, it's a massive issue. Biggest killer. So it's a it's a question then of joining up the apparent thinking between those different departments, because otherwise people get factionalised into where they sit, and that that tosses up a whole other big question about um, who who gets first bite of the cherry. And and I would say it's not. This is not just about trauma, this is about health care in general. I mean, in 2002, Derek Wanless's report was talking about actually the only way the NHS is going to survive in its current form is if, if, if the population takes a much more engagement with its own health um, and, and, if you like, takes some of the burden off the health care system. That hasn't really happened, and what we need is, as Peter Peelt said earlier, innovative solutions to make that behaviour change happen. I think that's really important. Somebody. Sorry, my name is Julia Cartwright. I'm of expertise in patient and public involvement. How do you bring patients into the lean process? Peter, I'm <laughs> going to pass that straight over to you. Though. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> can I pass it to someone else? Um, I, can, I can say something about that. Yeah, well... After you, Peter. Um, yeah, you may not have to wait very long. Would <laughs> <laughs> uh, you like Lynn to go first? <laughs> well, I, I mean, to be frank, the problem is we, we didn't try that. I, th I think some of the things Lynn was saying resonate with me, and I think it's a very interesting possibility. Um, at the moment, uh, we felt we had, we had enough difficulty, and this is coming back to the compartmentalization problem, just persuading middle management in the hospital to let the staff get on with it. This is, I think, one of the big fears, and I'm sure this 
resonates at higher levels of organizations as well, is that people who feel that they are there to manage uh, want to keep control. And if you insist on keeping control, then you won't let, let the people who need to do the innovation innovate. Um, now, how does that get back to involving, involving patients? Gosh, I think I'll hand over to Lynn at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I think we... Are you going to do something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give We've got a really good example. There's a, a particular uh, hospital um, in England, the Bol- Bolton Hospital, and their aspiration is to be the first completely lean-driven um, hospital um, in England, and they're doing really, really well. Uh, very strong leadership support for this and that filters down to the middle management tiers uh, and it's a good example of how there's a, an innovative culture there. I mean, you know, there's, there, there's decisions made, no argument about it's going to be lean but actually everything is put behind that. And they've been going for about three years and, and, and I've been knocking on their door saying, please will you... Um, try to see how we can better involve patients because at that stage they were involving them a little bit but in in, um, what I might say disjointed forums that didn't really feed back and and um, and I know the chief exec quite well and and he was saying no 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 it won't make a difference and then about nine months later I got an email to say we've tried it and it is the absolute missing link and they are now. <laughs> but, but it was interesting because they didn't tell me they were trying it. They kind of secretly did it. Um, and, and now they're the biggest champions in terms of those organisations who, who can, work can I ask how they did that? Because, so you know, what, uh, we have struggled with this. And, you know, what, what they did was... The mechani- mechanisms are very important. So it, it is important, and actually it's about... Some of it is quite difficult because it does involve patients' time because patients need to be involved in the knowing how we're doing um, bit, really understanding how the service works, and then in the room when it is being redesigned, because they'll say, well, why are you doing that? And so what they did do was actually um, pay some patients to come in for their time, which which might be controversial in the NHS. When we've been doing it, we haven't actually paid patients, but we've paid them their travel expenses. But actually what we found is that um, you know hundreds of patients do not feel able to do this, but actually there are lots of patients who do and who bring their, um, <coughs> their experience from other industry as well. So, so for us, we, we should have known this, but there was an unintended benefit in a lot of our work that, you know, people came, you know, mothers who organise five children at home have very specific skills in organisation. Patients are lawyers, patients are surgeons, you know, and they bring things from their own uh, industry as well, but it's about actually yeah. inviting them. We gave them the same respect as any other healthcare worker. Six weeks uh, notice mm-hmm. for for um, you know, <coughs> sessions and yeah. things, and they really have made a difference. And now they present. So they're they're quite novel, and they they are frequently asked to present, and they present around the world with the patients who've been doing the delivery. Yeah. And I've seen a patient on their own uh, presenting the Bolton uh, story. So, so it is true, you know, co-design or 
co-working. So, uh, it's just a second. Arvind, have you got a perspective on that? Okay. You want to share uh, Sorry. Fulsi. <laughs> At some point, we, we recognize that in the process of healing, especially in the, the non-surgical uh, situations, the patient has got a much greater role than the provider. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, so it all goes back to how do you enhance compliance uh, to the medication or to, or to follow up. I think just that one revelation that the patient gets better not because of what I told them, but because they want to follow what I told yeah. them. Mm-hmm. And then once your mind makes that switch, then you start innovating as to how do I make sure they no, so I think we invested a lot on, on patient counseling and empowerment. Basically letting them know of the benefits, the consequence of not following or not keeping up uh, the, 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 the follow-up dates. Uh, so that made a huge, huge difference in terms of uh, uh, the patients becoming better. I, I think once they are on the projected path of becoming better, the overall cost really goes down for the system. Uh, on a much more practical level, I mean, a lot of uh, eye care tends to be a very short stay, which means the patient is there for a few hours or a day. So in the, in the case of medication, <coughs> oftentimes you will have the nurses drop, put the, the, the hourly drops or two hourly drops. Uh, in our case, we recognize the patient is going to go back the next day home, and then somebody at home is going to be doing this. Not, we won't be there doing it. So even from the right from the beginning, we had the patient's caregiver. We just took the time to teach them once how to apply the drops, and then our nursing requirement dropped by 50%. Mm-hmm. No. So simple things like that. Okay, I've got a couple of people waiting oh, for questions. Oh, sorry. I'll come back to the question. <laughs> sorry, I've just got but a couple of people waiting to ask questions. So my name is Ellen Asadi. I'm a senior consultant in the Okay, that's that's definitely a question for Lynn, I think, because I think this this the uh, it's just that the way in which you talked about your productive ward at the beginning about having a consistent process, just maybe you could just reflect on. Uh, and I think it goes back to what Peter yeah. Yeah. Was, was saying, actually. Um, so so I th- I think there's an issue about it, certainly in, in the NHS the way we frame things and I mentioned at the productive ward at the beginning you know um, actually senior leaders who are very very focused on cost um, like to hear the words the productive ward nurses absolutely know they've got to take cost out but actually they want to do it in a different way so they want to release time to care uh, and, and do it that way so I think framing is really important in terms of really helping people understand you know, what there is. I, I think also then, you know, um, it does go down to can I see it, can I understand it, can I test it to see how it works in my context. And, you know, in, in the beginning of change management, particularly in the NHS, I remember we used to put things out and say, you've got to do it exactly like this. Well, actually, now we don't. We say, more. Oh, here's a range of things, like the productive ward is a set of modules. 
Like, well, we think, you know, it'd be really good if you start with these three. But then there's these. You, you can choose depending on what your local context is and your particular challenge. And what we found, and they can test it and they adapt it. Certainly Productive Ward is, is a global product now. And it's it's uh, only in the um, sort of affluent countries, but they've all adapted it. They've changed the terminology. They've changed the diagrams, um, you know, to suit their local cultures. And I think that that's really critical. Yeah, I just wanted to agree with that. Really, that one of the disadvantages, if you like, of of a lean approach is that you're going to get a certain degree of balkanisation. You know, in that the process won't look exactly the same because people have customised it. And at some levels of management, people get very uncomfortable about that. And clearly there has to be a sort of integration at the top level where people have to set some limits to that and say, well, you know, you have to deliver on this, this and this. We don't care that much how you do it. But beyond that, you, you can't take the process any further. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is the, the fun, one of the, the fundamental issues, particularly as we, as we dive into recession. 2011 is the last year when we're going to have money in the healthcare system. And, and I think the healthcare, as a, the NHS as an institution, hasn't realised there's a recession. You know, the bankers have been through it and seem to have bounced out of it. Um, people out there in private industry are very much aware of it. But because of the three-year spending cycle, the NHS hasn't felt it. And when everybody else is bouncing back up, suddenly in April 2011, we're going to plunge into the start of this recession. And that's going to be really difficult. And I have full support for the lean process, for the interface working, for getting everybody on board. But I think the magnitude of the problem is that's not something you set up overnight. It takes a certain level of buy-in. And there's going to be some big decisions across the board. So <clears throat> I have this concept, which I was bouncing off the chief executive of the NHS repeatedly. Um, and I think, is it, my analogy is, we're all in a saloon car, and the saloon car's got the patient sat on the roof. We're the advocates for the patient. In the front seat of this saloon car is an NHS manager who's driving. In the passenger seat is a consultant. In the back seat, there's probably a nurse and an allied health professional. We've got to turn this nice two-litre saloon which is currently very comfortable, into a very lean rally car with all the trimmings taken out, and we're now going to drive it very fast and very lean over very rough ground. Now, if the only person in the car, as I see it at the moment, <clears throat> is the NHS manager who has a seatbelt on, because at the moment the only things that we measure in healthcare, really measure, and decide on where the money goes is activity and productivity. We really don't measure, in terms of where the money goes, quality. Exactly. So we are asking clinical teams to drive this sudden, very, very stripped-down lean machine over really rough terrain fast, and the only person who's going to be looking smiling may well be the NHS manager. And if that's the situation, we will crash. And I think we will get ourselves into lots of rows in that car. <laughs> So what we, life, my view is what we need to do and what we've started to do now, and I want to try and drive this through in a big way, is the hip fracture program that goes through is something called best practice tariff. That's just the political name for it. But what it means is that the amount of money the hospital gets for that patient is significantly dependent not on activity or productivity. It's actually measured 
on quality metrics which have been defined not by NHS managers, but are the quality metrics that the geriatric medicine consultants and the orthopaedic medicine consultants through their specialist associations have created in their national audit. So the national audit return data is linked to the money you get, and if Mrs. Miggins does get good quality care by those metrics, then you get the incentive payment, and that incentive payment is equal to what you might need to invest in your change process or your innovation. And I believe that's what we've got to do, because if we don't give something for those other professionals to hang on to, then that car's going to crash. So as the manager with the safety belt on... um, (laughs) And the airbag. And the airbag. I would would actually um, completely agree with that. And I think that there is a strong move towards measuring the right thing. So I think that we have now um, PROMS, um, patient-reported outcome measures, which are starting to come in and influence the way in which healthcare changes. We've also got things called um, sequin incentives. I don't know if anybody knows what they are, but they are commissioning for quality and innovation incentives. They're now worth... 1.5% of the entire value of an acute uh, hospital's contract. That's a lot of money based on uh, quality indicators and not on process indicators. So there is a move in the right direction, but I agree with Keith, it's really got to happen quickly. Quality accounts. So I'm going to take this lady in the front row who's been waiting. My question actually goes back to the the formal question about patient involvement. My name is Juliette Bedford. I'm a registered nurse practitioner in Oxford. And I'm the director of a research-based consultancy called Anthropologica, which specialises in the applied anthropology of healthcare. Basically what we do is we work at the interface between biomedicine and local level healthcare provision. And most of what we do is from a patient perspective. So using their experiences and their perceptions and actually integrating those ideas back into the healthcare programming in a meaningful way. And most of the work we do is in Asia and Africa. So I was laughing when you, all of you, seemed very surprised that patients have something to add in the NHS. Um, I'm repeating dried up after you talked about leading with staff, you passed over what Lynn could do for patients. And, and then what you were saying was very interesting about your um, experience-based design, which to me is very sort of management consultancy speech. Um, it came from the design industry, really, actually. Sorry? It came from the design industry and the patients. Well, I still think it's quite discussion. <laughs> but again, I was Good amazed idea. by how surprised you all were that patients had a meaningful impact and a meaningful thing to play. But in the same way as I wouldn't expect to scrub up and go into surgery, I think what you need to be thinking about is getting experts who work with patients and who use qualitative methodologies critically and rigorously and actually incorporating that into healthcare programming here, here in the UK. Can I answer that? Okay. Yeah. I mean, we have, within the research group that I run, we have qualitative research as an integrated component. So, at the moment, the hip fracture, I uh, have a piece of research which we funded through DH, not through NHR or anywhere else, to actually look at what the patients out, what expectations are. Actually, for hip fracture, you know, we're worried about infection, we're about operations going wrong, we're about uh, implants falling out or dislocating. The patients actually just want to get through it alive. Yeah. Um, um, and so the, the patient... But interesting what you say, though. One of the difficulties, you say use the people who work with patients. I'm interested by that because one of the problems I have, which is in an area where there aren't patient voices, if you use parliamentary questions as an indicator of who out there from the patient population is trying to get things changed, if you're sitting in the, di- the, the policy group for diabetes, you aren't seeing 10, 15 PQs a week. If you're sitting in... 
fragility fractures, two in 12 months. Liver, alcoholics don't raise the questions. Mental health, you know, unless, if you didn't have a few of the charities around. So actually, finding the advocates for patients to keep, to keep, the, to keep the balance right is really very difficult. And I'd love to know what, can I go that way? What, what you think we should do? Can I make a comment first? Sorry. Um, I, I, just, I just felt that you weren't, listen, weren't hearing what we said because we didn't say we were very surprised. I don't think anybody said that. Um, I, I said that I didn't know because we hadn't done it. And I think that from... I think it's very important not to... Um, certainly from my perspective as an academic not to rush down a, ro a road because everybody believes that you know, it's a good thing it sounds nice we need evidence and, okay, can, you know, I, can, I, can I offer you a challenge because you know, Keith's thrown, thrown it back to you but I, I, what I'd like to know is uh, you know, going back to the topic that we're here about today which is about improving quality of care whilst taking out resources effectively so what I'd like to know is can the patients contribute to taking out resources whilst maintaining that quality of care? Yes, I think you showed adequately that it did in the NHS, mm. and I say that the work I've done shows that yes, they can do as well. Okay. So what? So going back to Keith, what what would you suggest well, I would that say, we? And also when you were saying about ponds, of course people with hip fractures want to get amended, they want to get home, mm. they want to affect a cure, and that's their baseline. What I'm talking about is bring people in, not looking at the outcomes, but looking at how they get to the services in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, not just, as you said, it's not just about improving access, it's about improving those channels to actually get people to be engaged and engage meaningfully. And that's where I think innovation needs to come in in a, in a really mm -hmm. big way. Okay. Can I say a couple of things? The problem that we have is that we don't actually have a good evidence base that actually involving patients exactly. works. Exactly. Um, and we have. Well, we haven't but we don't the at the moment. No, we don't at the moment. <laughs> and I, I think you're right, and I think that we're going that direction because the next problem that we're going to need some innovation over is that when the public realise the decommissioning that's coming in the NHS, you know, we will have a lot of public outrage, and they will want to know, the people who are running the NHS, how do they uh, make decisions on what gets funded, <coughs> what doesn't, and what methods they're using in terms of looking at the impact of where um, there's going to be hardest hit. You know, uh, I mean, I was talking to someone this week, and they said, well, we could have a sort of little mini grease here when people are out, sort of, you know, hitting sort of uh, pans, but we could, because mm -hmm. who, who in the NHS will make those decisions? Can I just turn it into a bomb? We don't, have a, me we don't mm -hmm. have a good mechanism. The other thing is that we've started to actually collect patient data, but when we feed it back into trust, it's <coughs> not utilised enough to be meaningful on your ward, Lynn. I, yeah, I want okay. to know why is it only one ward in each hospital wants yeah. to take on your programme? Where are the methods of evaluation to say, well, actually, I've, I've hit that and I know why? It's because it's down to an individual nurse who's leading it. So. And we're creating, we are creating the evidence about that now. And, mm. and actually, also in our, in our work on, on experience-based design, we worked intensively with researchers with anthropological skills who wrote a book. So, um, and there are peer-reviewed papers, and so we are uh, creating that evidence. You've then, got to, you've then got to translate the evidence and get it out there so that this yeah. is the way we do things around here. And I think yeah. that there's not a culture no, where we've not. got a partnership model. And I think we need to educate our clinicians yeah. who are now coming through the medical schools that this is what they do and they're talking yeah. and they're mm -hmm. very bad at mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. I'm not enough for an anthropologist to write a book. 
Uh, okay, so I'm going to... No, but, but within that, we've got implementation support for frontline staff. And, and it does go back round to the adoption, dissemination and adoption. What do we need to do at every level of the system? And it has to be at every level to create enablers um, for any of this to happen. And I think none of it is quite there yet. But I have to say, there's quite a lot of things happening at national level, at regional level, and at local level that really heartens me. And I've been in the NHS the whole of my life. And I'm really confident that it's, it's going to be a rocky road. But, but I, I see more now than I ever have before. Okay, I'm going to... Just stop that for a minute because yeah. there's a gentleman at the back there who's been waiting to sign again. <laughs> my name's Paolo Guini. I'm Australian doctor producing in cardiology. Currently doing my uh, Master of Business Administration here and the Chamber of Commerce Business Network. I was invited to do my MBA for a reason. He described working in a system where people often recognise the inherent inefficiencies and flaws, get frustrated, and then have no avenue to effect change. My question comes related to institutional culture and organisational culture. And we all talk about innovation. All of us here generally are passionate about it and believe in it and recognise the importance of it. But yet, in the system, we're not encouraged to innovate. Medical schools, junior doctors, senior doctors have a very hierarchical um, paradigm where people from the bottom aren't encouraged at all. And we can say that important innovation is how great it is, how the lean approach is important for efficiency, but yet, if we're not encouraging that from that grassroots level, how can we bring it into a pervasive, important <coughs> way in our system? Okay, I'm going to ask Peter to comment on that first because I think this is something which is dear to his heart and then I'm going to ask Keith yeah. because I'm pretty sure it is for him too. <laughs> I mean, one of, one of the things that sort of interests me when I reflect the path I've taken is that I'm, I started out doing sort of hard science molecular biology on cancer and I've ended up voting towards sociology which is a, a horrifying thought <laughs> for a surgeon, sure. you know. But, um, you know, this is, this is one of the key questions if you look at how culture works in NHS hospitals, there are a number of things about it that are inimical to innovation. First of all, you have this sort of parallel universe situation between the medical professionals and the management, which I think has, has many uh, detrimental effects. Secondly, you have the hierarchy effect. And the combination of the two makes it, makes it really difficult. How do you change that? Well, I think you have to attack it at every level. You know, you have, to, you have to educate the young but in medical school. Um, you have to have senior management who are, who are willing to disseminate the message and, and walk the talk, you know, to actually show that they support innovative programs. Uh, and you have to engage the, the grassroots staff once you're enabled to do so. And, you know, changing culture is a difficult job. The other half of our research life that I was talking about earlier is all about teamwork and if We've taken a lot of our work from the experience of the aviation industry. They had exactly the same problems with teamwork and safety in the 1960s as we have now, in that you had a very hierarchical system where the captain was God and was an extremely highly skilled professional, but the safety record was appalling because nobody could tell him he was wrong. Um, and if you, if you look at how they changed the culture and you speak to the people who did that, it took 15 years. It took a very long time using every tool available. So I don't think there's an easy overnight solution at all. 
Wow. Right. Briefly. Um, I think the whole culture of behavioural change thing is absolutely critical. And I, but I think there are some, some real broad themes of attack that have to, have to happen. Um, <clears throat> within the organisation of the NHS, there needs to be that ability for high-level management to be prepared to take risks, to give the power down. And in the NHS, we over every about every five to seven years, we go through the cycles of devolved management to service-level management structures, and then we go back to a centralist <coughs> control. That's because when they devolve, they lose control. Things go wrong in certain areas, and they drag back control, and it comes back up. And, and while we go down to the service-level management, we get some really good innovation happening, because people are basically given a budget, <coughs> you can do what you like with it, but just make sure you deliver the service to these <coughs> things. And they'll turn their service upside down. Um, but some people won't. So it's about taking risks and knowing, and I think it's something a bit like the um, um, b b getting compliant to go into the European monetary system. You know, there are some people who you know are compliant and can go in, and some people that you hold in a different management structure because they're not compliant. I think if people have got really good level service level management going, on, you can leave those places to run themselves and have a higher control for those that, that don't. I think so. I think the management culture is really important, and it shouldn't be broad brush, and it nearly always is broad brush. You don't get one service being treated differently to another, and you should do, because that's the reward culture that will work. And also the envy culture, because there's enormous competition in medicine in healthcare. The other thing that's important is, and having had um, uh, an informal dinner with one of Obama's chief health aides recently, um, and the reason that dinner came about was because I'd been doing a presentation in the meeting that he was at, and I told him what we were doing and how the specialist associations, the British Geriatric Society, the British Orthopaedic Society, were deciding the metrics on which the hip fracture program tariff would go forward. Because what happened in America was Obama lost the doctors. And as soon as you lose the doctors, and I accept other nursing questions, but actually doctors really carry a political weight. As soon as Obama lost the doctors, he lost the people. And that's when you've got a problem. If the doctors are saying, this is the right thing to do, then actually patients see the doctors as their advocates. In whatever survey you do, patients will still believe doctors more than anybody else, whether that's right or wrong. Uh, you, you know better than I. But actually that's still very true. And I think that's one of the things. So I think the next part of that change has to be that we have to engage with the specialist associations. And if I was chief executive of the NHS, I'd be turning around and I'd be saying to the urologists, to the physiotherapists, to whoever, saying, look, I've got to take 10% out of healthcare. You are best placed to tell me how to do that with the least impact on patients. You redesign the service. Yeah. And I think then we would get the ideas. And, and I've done this now with one group of surgeons, and I won't say which ones because it hasn't come to fruition yet. <coughs> but I've done this, and the first thing in the first meeting they put together was their thing was which operations do we have no evidence for that we're, that we're doing? <coughs> wow! You know, if I had an NHS manager coming in saying there's no evidence of that operation, you can't do it next week, you'd have a public outcry. You'd have that. You'd have what But the, the special association chairman is saying we don't have any evidence of that operation, or that way of treating it is no better on the evidence that we have than this way, and there's a cost difference. We can't. And then if they said we won't support that if your trust wants to take that out, that's a really important next step. And the last step, I would say, is patience. Because having spent my life also going around trying to solve failing surgeons and failing hospitals and service redesign around the NHS, 
and have left in numerous bulletproof cars as a result of it. But I can tell you, if you go in to try and take a service out for every right reason, because it's a poor service and everything, but if you go and take it out, try to take it out, and the local population don't want you to, you won't. You won't do it. And it's interesting how clinicians will listen to patients when their service is under threat and will ra- have them rallying down the high street. But actually listen to them when they want to change it for the better. They don't do it. So I don't think it's the patients haven't got power. I just think it's the way it works. So that's how I change the system. Three ways. Can I just ask, Fulci, uh, if you've got a, a view on that question as well? Because I think it's something which uh, you know, you've really done things about. Yeah, uh, 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 very, uh, very briefly, I think I would uh, recall what you just said. I think the, the whole uh, process of culture building is very much of a top-down uh, process, and the leadership has got to uh, believe in it, and then they have to uh, enable the right kind of a culture to, to take place. But more often than not, uh, I think, uh, especially with uh, older organizations, uh, the rules tend to substitute how you manage an organization, and that's how it gets very bureaucratic. And then, uh, so, it, so, it, so really, one have one has to uh, step out and then take a real look. Uh, and then building multiple channels of communication, you know, uh, the whole approach, whole uh, process of um, uh, cross-functional teams working on, on issues, uh, wherein the, the, the approval process for an idea is not hierarchical, it is more matrix. Mm. Uh, they all go back to fundamentally how you design the whole process, and then this is again goes back to the leadership, you know, because they design organizational processes. Uh, so the leadership is not uh, sensitive or uh, rightly tuned, it will be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. I've got. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll come back to you in a minute. But, uh, this lady here has been waiting a while. Um, uh, my name is Mary Black, and I'm from Belfast, but I live in Serbia. And I came here because um, I saw the word global. So, if you don't mind, can I bring it a bit global? Yeah, please do. Um, I'm a medical doctor, but I've also had a career in uh, clinical medicine, academia in the UN, and now I'm actually strangely in the private sector. And uh, I have two businesses, one on ICD-10, International Classification of Disease Coding, and products from that, and the other, in, which is my starter business on internet consulting in Serbia. Well, we have enormous competition. (laughs) Um, And now I consult as well, and I'm here looking at the UK's investment in pandemic flu, which is very interesting. And I'll report on that next week. Um, I just wanted three observations to make on this. Um, uh, Many years ago, uh, at the time of, um, in the the Philippines, when their last dictator was in power, I can't remember his name, Marcos had been on a study tour to America and had come across some very interesting idea on uh, stimulating children. So she came back and transplanted it. And each hospital had a room with clearly labeled aggressive and regressive toys. <coughs> and no children, and nobody quite knew what they were, but it was a transplanted idea. And I find when I come back to the UK, it's wonderful listening to all of your job descriptions and your titles and your projects, and I don't understand them. And they sound marvelous. I'm sure they're good, but they're built on many years of management culture in this country that got you to that level. 
And the country I live in, last four years ago, I wrote the plan for the first school for health managers ever. And it's coming out now. We will have our first cadre of professional managers, which will the first time will include nurses. So the, it, it's just, I guess, a comment we have to be careful when we switch innovation between countries and adopt models sold by very convincing, often surgeons or nurse managers who talk about cars and, you know, maybe we need biodiesel bicycles or something. So we have to be careful when we transplant innovation that it works. And I understand Dr. Arvillo perhaps best of all because that would be a model I kind of relate to. And I do think the UK is marvellous and I'd love to come and listen to it and I wish we were there. But um, don't do too many missions abroad. Very enthusiastic. Maybe listen a lot and transplant ideas. And the second comment was on data. Um, there's just a massive lack of data on how you track innovation. The UK is actually really far ahead because you have cross-cutting working. A lot of the world doesn't. Um, the thing I'm doing with avian flu, we're still having put billions into avian flu pandemic. We have no data on the pandemic in Africa at all that's useful. We'll cobble them together secondary data. We somehow missed the basics on the data. Um, and there is innovation, but we can't capture the recorded data. And the last comment was just on private-public partnerships. Um, the problem we face, particularly in Eastern Europe, is health systems failed or are failing, and in parts of, many parts of the world they are, and the slack has been taken up fast by either the grey economy, which is corruption, or well-managed um, the private sector. And I think the language has transferred. It's, it's really clear now that the solution has to be working with the private sector, and it's not a bad word anymore. And organizations like yours will bring health care to um, the people that used to, we used to think had to be served by a national health service. Um, because people, there are not decreasing resources globally. Expenditure is increasing, and it's increasing fast in most of the world, and showing no sign of slowing down. So if you look at the package of resources that people are paying, either through their tax or through out-of-pocket expenditure, it's increasing. It's decreasing for national health services. It's more compliant. But what people are spending is increasing and showing no sign of slowing down. I just thought I would observe that. Okay, that's uh, very helpful observations. Thank you very much indeed for those. So um, I had a number of questions. I've got two gentlemen sitting next to each other up there who both wanted to ask a question. So.
I designed an alternative higher local training program several years ago, which I have to say adopted in a couple of countries, but not in England, which has always hurt me. Um, but essentially, I, I think what we have currently is we have a, a very antiquated system of uh, medical education in the NHS. If you're going to be uh, an NHS manager, you do a job um, to your competence level and you do your MBA alongside in sort of a modular form in any other university degree and you can do that at whatever pace or time it takes you and you want to do during your career. <clears throat> in, in medicine, we tie training inherently into the same contract as the service contract. And that was fine when, <clears throat> when I trained, when we could do 83 hours a week as a routine as our contract because the education component was, was in there, but I got a lot of experience. And you could work as hard as you want to do as many clinics as you want. <clears throat> as we've gone on, and we've shrunk down to 48 hours necessarily, and rightly, we've actually maintained the education component and the research component the same as it was before. So it's now disproportionately large, and clinical experience is disproportionately less. We've also, because it's a merged contract, it means that <clears throat> when you do your service, you are training, and therefore, as a trainee, you can't do things um, independently. You've lost your autonomy until you finish training. You've always got to be supervised. Every surgical list has to have a consultant to supervise, even if the, the chap is a week before um, becoming out as a, as a consultant. There still has to be somebody supervising. That's a nonsense. Um, we need to move to a system where there's a service contract with the NHS, where you work as a doctor up to the level of competencies in your training that you've achieved, and then you need an education contract, which is completely separate, which looks like any other degree. You do modules along the way. If you do your modules and you finish all your modules, then at the end you've got a university diploma, which is consistent with getting your higher medical um, certificate to become a consultant. Or you can take a year out and add further modules and turn it into masters, and you can do that as a consultant or as a, as a, a junior. Or <coughs> you can do, do it and take a couple of years out and turn it into a PhD wherever you want along the car. So that feeds straight through into higher <coughs> continuing professional development and, and higher education through a whole career, which is what we need to do. So <coughs> I think there are ways to change it. And I think we've got, the problem is this, this meshed service and education contract, which, the NH, which doesn't do the NHS any good. So can I just ask if uh, Thulsi's perhaps got a different perspective on that from, uh, from India that you might bring? Uh, I know this seems very local in terms of the, the, the core seems to be like a policy issue. No, it's not a competence or a, uh, uh, there's no really innovation here other than changing mindsets and yeah. policies. Yeah. It's a cultural change. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Okay, so can I go to the uh, chat next to you? I, I just have one observation. I actually managed a doctor's surgery in 10 minutes from here for homeless people and vulnerable housing people. I just want to share just two points of our own work. Um, I've 14Ps, two of nurses, addiction nurses, mental health practitioners. Um, just picking up some of the points you shared this morning, we are constantly brainstorming as a team. Um, we've got daily communication meetings. We meet half one every day for half an hour due to the intensity of the patients um, that we actually deal with. So what everyone in the team comes together, shares points, communicates clearly about you know, um, what's going on and any issues that uh, they need help with. We communicate regularly about significant events, so things have gone wrong. So I'm constantly getting feedback. 360 people across the team, what went well, what went wrong, and we're constantly learning. 
ways that we're trying to do now. Yeah. We're actually setting up a patient participation group uh, in April funded by the Queen's Nursing Institute. Um, they've given some funding for actually giving some uh, shopping vouchers to the homeless patients. Uh, group of five, they're the That's excellent. Okay, I think we've got time for maybe a couple more questions, so I'll just take these two over here. Hi, uh, my name is Professor I'm a teaching fellow in Gloucestershire, and a student on the Masters in Leadership Program here. Uh, I'm a neuropsychiatry registrar, and I also sit on the panel of BBC Children in Need, where we assess where the money goes uh, that is collected from the grateful public. Um, I find myself curiously connected to just about everyone who's spoken here, and I'll explain why I was born in Bolton Hospital. My parents uh, are Indian immigrants and had a lot to do with medicine in Portugal after India. I worked at the Lucas Street practice and I trained in cardiothoracics until I found it exceedingly dull. Um, now, my question is something to do with not the patients uh, and not the management, but the staff. Uh, my experience has been fairly straightforward. The answer is not in resources. In fact, I look forward to the next five years because I think innovation arises due to shortage. Mm -hmm. In Zimbabwe, where I was raised, there is one psychiatrist, catchment area of eight million. Now, they deal with staff when they come in, knowing that Mugabe stopped the food rationing by saying we will buy food from South Africa for the staff. They deal with the staff three people in the hospital on average dying of AIDS, including the staff, by providing a grieving and a funeral service for the staff. What I see here, so it's not resources, it's resourcefulness. That's important. What I see here, in my experience, is the Royal Colleges are never really supportive of doctors. The BMA is completely toothless. Um, consultants, once they become consultants, are completely conceited and not interested in their junior's lives. Staff no longer have leisure clubs. Staff no longer have creches. Staff no longer have any perks. Staff don't give discretionary extra effort. They do what they need to do. It seems to me as if there isn't ownership and pride in the staff. And I'm wondering if the panel could look at or consider ways in which there are relationship innovations that can be made with the staff to get them to be proud of what they do. Because I think quality lies in them. Do you agree on I agree completely, and I think that's exactly what Peter Peel was getting on, getting at earlier when he was saying about we need innovations to change behaviours because that's that's what this is all about, really. And I think that's so. Has anybody got any comments they'd like to make before? I, I I'd agree with you, I, I, apart from one point. I so from particularly from a nursing staff point of view, uh, I work a lot with nurses. I see a lot of nurses giving a lot of discretionary effort in an attempt to improve quality and take out cost and improve patient experience. So I see that every day. So I'd, I'd have to disagree on that point. I, I do agree that actually that more could be done to help them. So, for example, the crashes and, and you know, leisure facilities. Some organisations do still um, uh, uh, have agreements <coughs> with local leisure f facilities for reduction <coughs> in memberships and things like that. It's not free, but it's, it's something. So there are some organisations who do that, but it's <coughs> not enough. I think we could get a lot better. Okay. I'm just going to take one last question now, and then we're going to have to wrap. 
Okay, we've got... I haven't got a problem with that. Um, it, the, the, the history of it is checkered. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's one of the difficulties. It's about risk-taking, and it's about being safe with other organisations. It's about what you're buying into and what you're contracting. But as long as the contracting is patient, stroke quality, stroke sensitive to medical elements, then I have no problem with <coughs> I think the NHS is getting better at partnerships. It is nowhere near there. It is much better. And I, I see there's going to, I think there's going to be a big change in the next four or five years, driven probably by the, uh, you know, the recession. Um, and already um, you see very emergent, but it's a good start, partnerships uh, arising with other industries outside health, local councils, um, teaching, education and health and starting to work together. So really early days, but, you know, What about that's locally? So those things that you're saying about outside of the UK, yeah. so mm -hmm. the NHS's role in sustainably developing healthcare. Mm -hmm. so the NHS is a great brand yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and it has an enormous potential, but I fully accept having tried to work in uh, a lot in Asia, mm. it, if you don't understand the culture, you don't understand the it just really, do, a lot of it doesn't translate. You've got to go and say, what do you need? And then what have we done that might actually be something you could use a bit of? I don't think yeah. it's any better than that. It can translate, but what strikes me about your comments, <clears throat> I come back here and I hear people criticising all the time their own service. Yeah. It's like the easy thing to do, you just did it. Compared to what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why is it so bad compared to what? I come here and I think, we all have our own we all have our own benchmarks, and I think that's. What is your benchmark? Have you any idea what the rest of the world is like? Well, clearly, I think that I was raised in the rest of the world. But what I'm getting at is, I guess, we could be a lot further than this slightly overweight capitalist system that we've got here, which seems to thrive on a degree of mediocrity. It could be a lot better, considering how much more it has. That's better. You're getting that. And on that note, I think we're going to have to draw this to a close. I mean, I'm, I'm very sorry for the chap who's been sitting at the back there with his hand up for a, some considerable time. But we are now over time, and uh, it's, it's lunchtime. I hope that you've all uh, got something out of that session, and you all found it uh, mildly enjoyable. And uh, I hope that you.